podcasters and the music they make us listen to. I'm Peter, and I'm here with my co-host, Lee. Hi. And you're joining us for part two of our October trilogy of despair. (laughs) And we're going to dive right into it. Just a little bit of housekeeping up front. We keep getting lots of new listeners, which is awesome. Thanks for coming. A lot of people uh, ask what they can do to help us out. Best thing to do is to just tell as many people as you can about this podcast and get them listening. Yeah. There's not a lot of, uh, we don't do a lot of like inside jokes, but it is worth going back to previous episodes because we reference them quite a bit. So if you want to be in the know fully, I recommend you check those out. Who doesn't want to be in the know fully? Exactly. You want to be half in the know. No. Be full in the know. Fully in the know. Don't half-ass anything. Mm-hmm. Whole ass one Use your full thing. ass. Full well, asses. Yeah. Full asses only, people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we also have a website, www.thisdisasterpod.com. You can check out our shop there, too. And now, on to the disaster. Yes. The Pima people are a group of Native Americans living in modern South Arizona. Huh. They tell a legend called Oimadam. Huh. Here it is. Where do you come from? A Pima asks a tall, dark-haired man. I come from far away, the stranger replies, from across the eastern ocean. Mm. What do you bring, the Pima asks. I bring death, the stranger answers. <laughs> oh dear. My breath causes children to wither and die like young plants in the spring snow. I bring destruction. No matter how beautiful a woman, once she has looked at me, she becomes ugly as death. <laughs> oh, even the pretty one. <laughs> And to men, I bring not death alone, but the destruction of their children and the blighting of their wives. No people who look upon me are ever the same. In the Pima's language, Oimadam means wandering sickness. Hmm. So today's disaster is off book, meaning that I did our own, uh, I did my own research for this one. Mostly I read a book called The Great Mortality. Okay. By John Kelly. This isn't in the book? It is in the book. Oh. So you sort of left it. Yeah. Right. Especially this first part. It's, uh, I did, uh, I, I, I got, I got, I got deep into this one. The book is called The Great Mortality yeah. by John Kelly. Cool. And if you know what that's about, then you know what this episode's about. And if you read the title of the episode, you know what this episode's about. There's no hiding but behind anything. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna say the words yet. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot that leads up to it. Maybe you've gone out of your way to unspoiler this episode. Indeed. So we'll respect that. A little bit, a little bit. Don't read the hashtags. I want to start off by talking about the three crones. Oh. So three old crones on horseback materialized through a curtain of snowfall outside the Russian city of Ryazan one morning in the winter of 1237. Okay. After pausing some distance from the city gates, one of the haggard women rode backward and forward along the city walls crying one-tenth of everything. A crowd gathered on the other side of the city gates, watching the woman run up and down, <laughs> yelling one-tenth of everything. There's nothing on TV that you day. Basically, yeah, I guess 1237 Russia. <laughs> Something's not, happening. Not a, yeah, right. <laughs> there was some disagreement among the people gathered whether the old crone was a witch or a sorceress. Mm. But regardless, she was outside and they were inside the tall, secured city gates. So they were like, how about you kiss one-tenth of our asses? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I like to think that they would have literally said that. Yeah. Even back then. Probably. <laughs> I think that's the kind of thing that I would have said. Yeah. I think. I mean, at what point did sarcasm come into language? Right. Probably from the start. Yeah. So. Now, what could go wrong? Uh, Crazy yeah, yeah. woman running up and down the gates. What's she going to do? A few wintry months later, mm-hmm. the city of Ryazan woke to the sight of a dark line along the horizon splitting the earth from the sky. The sound of thunder grew louder and louder until the city gates were demolished and the streets were filled with the sound of slashing and anguish. Pristine white snow was painted in broad strokes of crimson red. The question of whether the old crone had been a witch or a sorceress was answered. It was neither as a scout 
for the Mongol hordes. <laughs> so their chant of one tenth of everything was a demand for tribute. So maybe a little bit more specific would well, help. <laughs> so one tenth of everything. <laughs> what? What's she, she saying? Does she just like fractions? <laughs> Send a note. Get her out of here. Write it down. Jeez. <laughs> the Mongols didn't stop their brutal assault until every living soul, <laughs> man, woman, and child lay dead on the smoldering city streets. God. And Should also, so this wasn't the first time the Mongols appeared in the West, uh-huh. uh, but it was the mark of their intentions to stay. Well, one so, tenth isn't a bad deal. Right? If they only had known. Well, yeah. <laughs> they probably... Yeah. Maybe maybe lay out the terms of the deal a little clearer. Like, <laughs> Sorry, I'll be more specific. <laughs> <laughs> One tenth or else, maybe, <laughs> yeah. would be nice. Be For nice starters. Yeah. <laughs> Very briefly, history of the cons. Actually, first thing, if you want to get the full detail about the cons, listen to Hardcore History's series called The Wrath of the Cons. Which is, get yeah, out of here. Right, yeah. But <laughs> still, it's super detailed and it's okay. super interesting. And it turns out the cons were badass. Or we're the Mongols about, were badass. Yeah, Sorry. We're talking about the con, like... I know of Genghis Khan. Well, two cons. Yeah. Genghis being one. And the other, the one from Star Trek. <laughs> I was going to say Kublai Khan, but. Right. That's, that was, that's more of a so deep three, dive into the cons. Three of them. Yeah. That's, he comes up, listen to the Hardcore History series. Okay. But anyway. So Genghis Khan lived from 1162 to 1227. From 1206 to 1227, he reigned as Kagan, or this is like the Mongolian equivalent of an emperor, or Supreme Khan of all Mongols. Uh-huh. Genghis's road to supreme conship was paved in intrigue, betrayals, and obviously blood. Blood. A lot of blood. Mainly blood. Just mostly blood. Mostly, it's blood. mostly the blood. He's known for that. And as actually, so as an example, during the quashing of one of his former allies, and he's got a lot of former allies. Former allies. Turns out. <laughs> uh, Jamuka was his name, the okay. guy that he was crushing. Uh, so he instituted a practice known as measuring against the linchpin. Does that sound familiar? Measuring again? No. So... <laughs> So basically, upon defeating an army, the survivors would be the survivors of the defeated army would yeah. be marched past a giant wagon wheel with a linchpin inserted in in like the highest point or in, in one point on the on the wagon wheel. Yeah, and anyone whose head was higher than that pin was immediately beheaded. <laughs> <coughs> and that's basically basically to prevent the retaliation of the defeated, right? Because okay. basically, all that's left is going to be children. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So bent back old people. Basically. So that's. <laughs> A lot, a, of, a lot of blood. It's a tactic. A lot yeah. of blood. Yeah. The and that basically that brutality became Genghis's trademark, and so he wouldn't just defeat an enemy, but he would decimate the population. So wow. it w- he wouldn't just like take a city; he would take a city and kill everyone inside it. Uh huh. For the most part. Okay. Civilians and warriors, like nobody was safe. Just in case. And it's actually it's funny. Some historians theorize that that approach ultimately it it didn't. It didn't take down the Mongolian Empire because obviously they got to be quite great, but mm. it certainly shot them in the foot <laughs> because murdering every able-bodied civilian basically means that you take away any kind of like farming and any yeah. kind of industry and yeah. you get rid of most the most important cornerstone of every civilization, which is taxation. <laughs> like he can't raise any funds because he's killing everyone. Right. You kind of throw in the baby out with the bathwater. Like you, you get, you get, you get the fun. He, he gets all those spoils once. But yeah. if he had kept them alive, he could keep collecting taxes. Exactly. But give a man a fish and eats and if, and chop his head off, then he can't <laughs> fish the next day. I think that's the same. That's the same. I think he nailed it. Yeah, yeah. He killed it. That's yeah. it. Kill, killed it. That's it. Killed we're it. Talking I about... decapitated it. <laughs> yeah, linchpin. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so as brutal as the expansion of the Mongol Empire was, their rule brought political stability, 
which extended to the already ancient at the time Silk Road. That might ring a bell too. I've heard those words together. We're building. As you know, if you're if you're new to this podcast, we spend some time building the base. So by the time we get the, to the tip of the story, mm. you're fully informed. Right. And it's all of this is important. Yes. So the, the foundation in your brain. It's true. Will support we're, we're, the facts to follow. We're, we're pouring the concrete of facts mm. that are going to solidify on which we'll build the house oh, of misery. I'm going to scratch my name in that concrete. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Go on. So the Silk Road. <laughs> so the Silk Road, you probably heard of it. It probably rings a bell. I've, yeah. It was a network of trade routes connecting Asia and the Arabian Peninsula right. and also East Africa and Southern Europe. Okay. Historical accounts of the roads connecting the East and West date back nearly 2,000 years. Hmm. So it's not completely, actually more than that. It was 2,000 years BCE that there are historical accounts of there being routes from hmm. East to West. And, and that's actually interesting. They discovered that because they found remnants of Chinese silk dating from 1070 BC in ancient Egypt. Nice. So in, you know, the Egypt that we talked about in the last episode, they yeah. already would have had silks a thousand years before zero. Right. Yeah. That they cool. were roasting their babies in. Yeah. Well, that came like Three thousand years after that, okay. but still, still, but still maybe, still, still, maybe, still, still there, still there. Just still had it. The Silk Road was officially seeded in China in 130 BCE, so that's when you like officially established these routes. Okay, that would come to be called the Silk Road. Hmm. The Chinese efforts to expand their dynasty required more robust horses, such as those bred by the nomads that robed in the Eurasian Steppe, which was to the west. Okay, actually interesting because I've heard that a lot. I don't know if you've heard the term steppe a lot. Uh, I. I've, you know, I've read it yeah. more than I've heard it. Exactly. And it always bothered. I was like, right. is it steppy? Is it, is it just like, <laughs> is it like a step? Is it a literal step? You just stepping on it? <laughs> yeah. No, so it's a step is an eco region that's characterized by temperate grasslands and shrublands. Basically like big, picture big fields of grass and shrubs and great yeah if you've seen pictures of mongolia actually is, is a lot of a lot of this so the eurasian steppe was an eco region spanning from bulgaria through ukraine and russia and into mongolia okay modern day the chinese wanted these robust horses and the nomads in turn wanted grain and silk which the chinese had tons of Fair so trade. the silk road was established to facilitate the exchange of these commodities between the chinese and the nomadic peoples in the eurasian steppe perfect Everyone wins. It's a fair deal, yeah. Right? Give the nomadic people about a millennium and a Genghis, and maybe the Chinese will wish they didn't help them get oh. a toehold, but whatever. Former ally? Well, listen to Wrath of the Cons. Okay. You'll, it'll, you'll get a lot of detail. You'll get the details there. The Chinese are, might be kicking themselves for equipping the Mongol horde. That con guy turns <laughs> yeah. out to be a bit of a dick. Yeah, yeah, turns around. Yeah. But give it a couple thousand years. Okay. The Romans became acquainted with the Silk Road following their conquest of Egypt in 30 BCE, which we talked a little bit about last time. Right. Because it connected, uh, the Silk Road connected East Africa as well to the to the east. <clears throat> and actually, it's funny, the Romans' love of Chinese silk became a real problem. To the point where the Senate had to enact laws against over-importation of silk because basically Rome was exporting all of their gold to China because everyone <laughs> wanted Chinese fancy silk. fancy material. Basically, yeah. Can you eat it? <laughs> Dumb dicks. We can't pay our soldiers. We have silk. But it's so smooth. <laughs> you won me over. Yeah. Okay. Control of the Silk Road traded hands several times since the Romans. Okay. So they obviously lost control of it as the empire fell, even though the Romans, well, they didn't really control it, but they were kind of like the dominant empire at the time. Yeah. It's interesting because it connected different civilizations as it passed through many territories. 
So it's kind of hard to control this one thing because it passes if it passes from like one empire to another like dynasty to another yeah. thing or whatever who controls <laughs> the exactly. Silk Road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But one of the major unifying and stabilizing forces that allowed the Silk Road to take hold was the expansion of the Mongol Empire. Mm. Because like we said, if it passes through all these empires, who controls it? Well, if somebody conquers all those empires. Well, the toughest. The, <laughs> the Mongols control. Yeah. <laughs> now we've set up the Silk Road and the Mongols, and both of those are going to be important in like 30 seconds. Okay. So I'm going to flash forward a little bit. Yeah. So let's talk about Theodosia. So Theodosia was a city on the southern, southeastern shore of modern Crimea. It was founded by Greek colonists in the 6th century BC, about 200 years before the Plague of Athens, oh, which okay. is kind of good to know. Talked about that. Yep. <clears throat> That's the very first episode. Check that episode, out. Check it out. Plague. Plagues. Plague. Plague. So it was destroyed by the Huns in the 4th century BC and it remained a minor village until it fell under the rule of the Mongols, told you they'd be important, hey. when they conquered Crimea in 1230. And they renamed it Kaffa. Okay. And now people that are in the know might be picking up the thread. But anyway, we we're getting there. we talked about that. Yeah. So Kaffa was purchased from the Golden Horde, which is basically like a Mongol canate. Like it's one of the, I guess, dominions within the Mongol empire. Gotcha. So it was purchased from them by the Republic of Genoa. And Genoa actually, so modern Genoa is the capital of what used to be the Republic of Genoa, which is in Italy. Yeah. Yeah. As, as you know. Yeah. Probably. They call it Genoa, but go yeah. on. Well, sure. Genoa. <laughs> Pronunciation. Yeah, nice uh, salami. Even though the Genoese bought Kaffa from the Mongols, they couldn't exactly move it. <laughs> and the Mongols and the Genoese were kind of like oil and water. <laughs> so oh, the, the Mongols found the Genoese conceited, arrogant, and conniving. Okay. Which is, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't say it to their face. No, but. well, well, I feel like a Mongol would actually. <laughs> oh, I thought, sorry, I heard it the other way around. <laughs> no, no. So the Mongols found the Genoese. Where did they find them? Uh, conceited, arrogant, and conniving. Okay. Yeah. Do you know anybody from Genoa? Genoa? Uh, not, no, not specifically. Okay. And I imagine you wouldn't tell me if they were conceited, arrogant, <laughs> or conniving. None of, yeah, no. Maybe things have changed in the last yeah. millennium. <laughs> All the Italians I've met have been wonderful. Great. So. Yeah. Anyway, so the, Mon <laughs> so the Mongols joked that the Genoa, joked, quote right. unquote, the Mongols joked that, that the Genoese were the kind of people that would name their children after you while picking your pocket. Whoa. Right? Good joke. Burn. Burn. <laughs> so yeah, there's a quote of Genghis Khan's that says, they were eaters of sweet, greasy food who wear garments of gold and hold in their arms the loveliest of women. Oh. Which is kind of, I, I think that was supposed to be a burn. All compliments. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I feel like, like. Yeah, right? More, more Isn't like it a, awesome? Like a jealousy thing? <laughs> yeah. Look at those. Perhaps. Look at those nerds with their beautiful women yeah. and their succulent food and. Delicious. Nice clothes. Yeah. God, I, I hate they, these itchy yeah. robes. <laughs> why, why do we wear hair? Let's kill them. <laughs> so the tension between the Mongols and the Genoese grew to a boiling point at a trading station in Tana, which is in modern day Russia, uh, in 1343. So it's a port city. It's approximately 390 kilometers northeast or 240 miles northeast of Kaffa. Which yeah. is the city I was just talking about. Right. And it's actually the starting point of the Silk Road land route to China. Okay. So the the road the route goes all the way from China and then the last like land-based point is this port at Tana. Okay. So there's a scuffle between the Mongols and the Genoese merchants that are in Tana. Mm. The historical account says Muslims, not all Mongols are necessarily Muslims. I think historically they eventually accepted Islam as like their main religion. Okay. But anyway. 
At this point, so there's a scuffle between Italian merchants and Muslims in the streets of Tana, which escalated as brawls do, until the market stalls were knocked over, fists flew, and a knife stabbed a Muslim man to death. Shit. So unfortunately for the Italian merchants, a Mongol Khan named Janibeg had proclaimed himself a defender of Muslims. The Mongols were actually pretty open to any kind of religion. They didn't have like one unifying religion per se. Okay. Again, it was, a, it was an empire that spanned a long period of time. So it, it changed over time, but at least at the beginning, I think Genghis Khan was very open to any kind of religious belief. Right. Which is kind of forward thinking of them. Whatever God. Right. Yeah. As long as I'm in charge. As long as I'm <laughs> above him. You believe what you want. <laughs> yeah. I'm in charge. Yeah. <laughs> He's second in command. Exactly. <laughs> but then you had some cons like, like Janibeg who had proclaimed himself a defender of Muslims. Okay. So he arrived outside the Tana gates and laid siege to the town. Right. As he does. And he demanded that the Italians handed themselves over to be judged. I guess the Genoese, <laughs> but I'm going to- Fairly, yeah. I'm sure. But Sure. And then the Italians say, hey, Janibeg, judge this. Yeah. Va yep. fangul. Is, is what that, they say. Yeah? Yeah. What's, what's that? Let's go fuck yourself. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> Basically, that's probably what they said. Yeah. I guess nobody told these one, these particular Genoese about the three old crones that I mentioned <laughs> at the beginning. Oh, not the crones. Well, They're they still don't- alive? <laughs> they don't show up, but it turns out- Well, no, I think that was like a couple hundred they years replaced. <laughs> but um, I imagine that you still don't tell a Mongol Khan to go fuck himself. So <laughs> that probably hasn't changed. <laughs> he probably just didn't react. I say, go wake up the crones. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't we like given them terms? Haven't we learned this lesson? Did you hear now? what he said to me? <laughs> Did you hear what he's wake, wake the crones. Wait. <laughs> But the crones are sleeping. <laughs> Wake them up. Well, I guess you just have to go wake them up now, won't you? <laughs> this is when we'll edit in that music from Pulp Fiction. That's <laughs> from the what game it's scene. from. I was like, yeah. what the hell is that? <laughs> Enraged, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Janibeg stormed Tana with his Mongol horde. Okay. And even though the Italians may not have heard about the crones, they were well acquainted with Mongol brutality. <laughs> so they beat a fighting retreat to the docks where they shoved off in their ships and sailed as fast as they could to Kaffa. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> right? It's like when you tell someone to F off in yeah. your car as you're driving away. <laughs> <laughs> it's the weakest move. Go fuck yourself. What? <laughs> oh no, a red light. Yeah. Well, don't underestimate the thirst for justice of a Mongol Khan. <laughs> so Janibeg and his men jumped on their horses and their hooves pounded the nearly 700 kilometers by land all the way to Kaffa. <laughs> wow. 430 miles on horseback, racing uh, the Genoese boats. Vengeance is good fuel. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. So the race was on to make it to Kaffa first. For the Italians, it meant the safety of the city walls. And for the Mongols, it meant the chance to beat the Italians there and slaughter their smug faces. <laughs> yeah, and smash their pretty walls. Right. Yeah. Unbeknownst to either group, though, a third opponent had entered the race a few years prior. Oh. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Okay. So, Kutluk and Magnukelka, those are names. Mm. Kutluk and Magnukelka lived in a cottage that stood at the edge of Lake Issyk Kul. The seeds of a buddy comedy right there. Basically, yeah. Found in modern Kyrgyzstan. 
Also, interestingly, doing this research, you come across names like Isik Cool. It's I-S-S-Y-K dash Cool, K-U-L. All these names are like Lord of the Rings, basically. Yeah. He just looked at a map and was like, uh, that one. I like that. I yeah. like that. I yeah. like that. Basically. So it's basically sandwiched between China to the east and Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan to the west. Okay. It's approximately 3,000 kilometers east of Tana, that city where the scuffle broke out. Yeah, yeah. About 1,900 miles. So Isak Kul actually means warm lake in the Kyrgyz language. Mm. And it's, it's actually interesting because it's, it's a lake that's surrounded by snow-capped peaks, but it never freezes. So mm. it's kind of idyllic, I guess. It's properly named. Which also means that this idyllic warm lake made it a popular stopping point along the Silk Road. So anyone ah. going along the Silk Road would stop by this nice warm lake. Nice. Where Kutluk and Magnukelka lived. <laughs> so one morning in 1339... About four years before the scuffle in Tana, Kutluk right. woke up feeling lightheaded and nauseated. Oh. But also, who isn't at this point? I'm assuming that he spent the night drinking, because what else is there to do in well, the 1300s? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After a long day of, I'm, I'm drawing on the Holy Grail right now. I can only assume that he spends his day sorting mud. I was just sorting just, a- <laughs> Basically. <laughs> just sorting the mud. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So anyway, uh, he, his wife is just like, suck it up. Everyone's nauseous. That's the 14th century. (laughs) (laughs) This is normal. You should know that. Well, that evening, Kutluk vomits into his dinner. Oh, dear. And his wife's like, oh, well, I guess you're sick then. Kutluk goes to bed to sleep it off. In the morning, Kutluk wakes up in agony. Okay. Because a lump the size of an apple has appeared just beneath his belly button. Oh. And when his wife tries to probe it, obviously, like poke it, (laughs) obviously, right? Something appears on you and you're like, ew, let's touch it. (laughs) Don't touch it. I just want to see. Does your quick, quick relationship sidebar, (laughs) does your wife do that thing where she'll like open the fridge, take something out and be like, oh, that's disgusting. Smell it. Uh, something like, yeah, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. That's the thing where, and she like, it's a a joke between us. She's not gonna be mad that I'm like making fun of her for it, but she (laughs) like constantly, she'll be like, oh, this is disgusting. Smell it. Right. No, you just share in my misery. You just told me it's disgusting. You share everything. Put it in the garbage (laughs) and I won't smell it on the way out. take your word for it. (laughs) Yeah, you got this. Yeah. Anyway, so when she touches it, when, when Magna Kelka touches this new boil that's showed up on his body, the pain is so excruciating that Kutluk rolls onto his side and throws up again. Oh my God. Yeah. It's a throw up button. Well, by the evening of the second day, Kutluk has developed a nasty cough, mm. including thick, ropey, bloody <laughs> mucus. <clears throat> so Kutluk's- Ropey is- Ropey. A wonderful adjective. Yeah, I mean- When you're talking about mucus. Ugh. Especially blood, bloody mucus. Well, bloody mucus. So Kutluk spends the second evening sweating and convulsing, consumed by a fever and the nightmarish visions it brings. Jeez. Dreams of people hanging by their tongues from burning trees. Oh, shit. People being smothered by asphyxiating smoke and people being swallowed whole by fish or eaten alive by demons and serpents. Whoa. He's the first death metal dude. Basically, right? (laughs) Reading this book, it's like if you ever needed imagery for a black metal album, just read... Like medieval history. (laughs) I think that was uh, H.P. Lovecraft's bread and butter. Yeah, must have been. Must have been. So the next day, he spends it shivering, reliving the visions from the night before. (laughs) Mouth and clothes caked with blood from the relentless bloody cough. And his chest feels like it's being seared from the inside with a hot coal. Think of like the worst heartburn you've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) That's a real smorgasbord of ailments. Well, you know. Yeah, it, it reminds me a little bit of what we talked about in the Plague of Athens, mm. but way worse so far. Sounds worse. Yeah. But yeah. really 
you're, I mean, yeah, <laughs> degrees of awful. degrees of yeah, <laughs> kill me. So the growth on Kutluk's groin begins to gurgle. Yeah, mention the groin, the groin, the groin growth. Well, that's the thing that she poked. Oh, it was on the, his groin. Well, it's beneath the belly button, right around that. Okay. Yeah, that that region, that the groinal region. region. Gotcha, gotcha. So Magnukelka, it begins to gurgle. He gurgle. said, gurgle. gurgle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. So mm. Magnukelka, Kutluk's wife, yes. who had been caring for him throughout this ordeal, didn't notice that Kutluk had stained his bed on the fourth day of his illness with a bloody anal leakage. Bloody anal leakage. Likely because she threw up that morning. Oh. So Magna Kelka spent the fifth day laying on her own straw mat across the cottage from Kutluk, vomiting and listening to her husband cough up an unending flow of bloody mucus. Mm. In the evening of the fifth day, Magna Kelka heard a deathly rattling sound coming from her husband's throat as he exhaled and breathed no more. It's the death rattle. Magna Kelka lay in silence for a moment and then she began to cough. <laughs> right. <laughs> like... Mm-hmm. Maybe I should have left the house yeah. once this started. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. that'll come up again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so a year after Magna Kilka began to cough, accounts of a similar sickness were heard in Belasagun, another rest stop along the Silk Road, west of Isikul. Okay. It was used as an exchange route where riders in the Mongol Pony Express would exchange horses. So the Pony Express, that's like, if like Genghis Khan, uh, he wasn't alive at this point, but if one of the Khans wanted to send a message quickly. Yeah. You'd basically have all these points along the Silk Road where you have fresh horses. So you'd basically ride a horse until it's like almost or even dead. Right. And then just switch horses just and do them. it again. Okay. And I, I can't remember now off the top of my head. Maybe we'll post this on the social media, but I think it was the difference of like three months doing it yourself or nine days by the Pony Express. Wow. So it's basically like the FedEx of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like the Amazon Prime of it'll be there by (laughs) 9 p.m. tonight. So a year later, the sickness is spotted in Talas, even further west. Then it's spotted in the crossroads at Samarkand. And by 1346, when the Mongols were racing the Italians to Kaffa, people were dying of a mysterious sickness barely 160 kilometers east of Tana. Okay. 100 miles. So let's talk quickly about rodents on the Silk Road. Okay. Got to set up a lot of pieces. You know what we were talking about building the foundation? Of course. So we've we've built like the foundation for the the, the garage maybe, and yeah. now we're expanding out underneath the rest of the underneath, house. Underneath, you want your finished basement. Yeah. yeah. It's all and for also, the greater good. There is a lot of information here, and I spread some of it out over this and the next episode. <laughs> okay. So here we're just, we're, 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 you're getting what you need for the story that I'm telling right now, and there's more to come. <laughs> I'm half. very interested. I, it's just, it's funny how off topic it is at the beginning. Yeah. Well, you need to. <laughs> but I have faith that. Yeah. You need to. The pieces come together. Of course. So, rodents on the Silk Road. Mm. Terabagan marmots are a species of rodent, members of the Scuridae family. And the Scuridae family is also what, where squirrels oh, are. Yeah. Squirrels are also Scuridae. Okay. Cool. They're found in China, Mongolia, and Russia. And they're adorable. Hmm. Also terrifyingly efficient plague vectors. Mm. In the 19th century, Tshirkashov, a writer, wrote about how nomad hunters were taught to avoid trapping sick terabagans because of the mysterious illness they carried that could jump to humans. Ugh. And you could identify it because the sick ones would basically be like, they'd have like a wobbling, staggering kind of gait. Oh. So like, don't <laughs> hunt those. because They were sneezing into their elbows? <laughs> <laughs> Stay away from those ones. You're out hunting. <laughs> yeah, don't kill that one. Oh, steer clear, boys. He'll get you that. He'll get, he'll get you. Don't do. Don't kill that one. So around the end of the last ice age, twelve thousand years ago, a massive increase in rodent population happened. Right. Nature tends to have checks and balances. Yeah. 
So one explanation for how this works is through a mechanism called Malthusianism. And this will be important because it'll come around again at the end of this whole story. Okay, I remember that word. Well, I'm going to tell you a little <laughs> bit more about it. I'm going to give you a minute. I'm going to give you a sidebar on Malthusianism. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so Thomas Robert Malthus was an English scholar and cleric in the 18th century. Okay. And he's best known for a paper he wrote in 1978 called An Essay on the Principle of Population. He proposed that a population can grow exponentially. So at its most basic, it makes sense. You have two parents that have two kids and those two kids each have two kids and that continues going on and you get exponential growth. But at the same time, the growth of the food supply is linear. So the food isn't necessarily Uh self-replicating. So it's being produced and you're gradually making more, but it's not necessarily keeping up with that exponential population growth. Right. So the problem is eventually the line representing the exponential population growth crosses the line representing linear food. And then the growth of the population outstrips food production. So you basically lead to a famine and everything that comes with it. Yes. Like disease. Yes. Malthus proposed that there are two methods to deal with this sort of situation. One is preventative checks. So like conscious choices not to breed, knowing that the food's going to run out. Right. Stop having babies. We don't have enough food. Yeah. Spoiler for, (laughs) you don't even know what I'm going to say right now. (laughs) I don't. Have you ever... No, I'm not going to say it. I'm going to wait. No, wow. I can't because there's- Mysterious. I was going to recommend something to you, a show. To not have a babe. I was going to re- <laughs> I was going to recommend a show to you, uh, but recommending the show in this context would immediately spoil it. So I'm not going to- Oh, okay. I'm going to okay. wait until we forget about this episode. And then when you least expect, I'm going <laughs> to recommend a show later. to you. <laughs> I'm just going to shout a show name at you. Okay. I'm setting an alarm right now. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so those are preventative checks, but you also have what he called positive checks or uh, what's been come to known as a Malthusian catastrophe. So that's like premature death caused by disease, starvation, and war, which kind of skims the excess. Oh, those are the positive ones? Well, positive <laughs> positive is an active, right? Oh, I see. But yeah, not positive like... They're good. This is better. Yeah. <laughs> he's, just, he's just dead. One less mouth to feed. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and actually, interestingly, while we're in the sidebar, neo-Malthusianism, which is like a modern movement, has drawn some heat because mm. it's motivated in large part by concerns about climate change. So it's kind of a push for contraception to kind of stem population growth and decrease the effects of climate change caused by people. By people. But also critics see it as overly pessimistic because they, and they see it kind of obsolete in light of modern agricultural techniques. But on the other hand. I mean, are we running out of people? No. They're not wrong. No. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Fair enough. Yep. That's, yeah. I'm all for it. Yeah. (laughs) That's the, uh, the selective nihilist in me. I can't wait to recommend that show to you when you least ex- <laughs> least suspect. Everybody who's listening who knows the show that I'm talking about is probably screaming is it the at the Handmaid's right Tale? Nope. Oh. So what Malthusianism has to do with Tara Baggins? Okay. So the massive explosion in population following the last ice age, it needs to be checked yes. or they'll outstrip their natural resources. Yes. And that's, that's a bad thing. Yes. This is not to imply that nature is designed, but... If overpopulation outstrips food supply, the terabagons begin to starve, which makes their immune systems weak, which means that disease can now take hold. Mm. And that's what eventually makes them into such efficient plague vectors. <laughs> so the disease that takes hold could be the common cold, or it could be something much worse. Like what? Much worse. <laughs> much worse. Okay. <laughs> so a sick terabagon. <laughs> a sick terabagon was finally dissected in 1905. Sick terabagon. Right. <laughs> New band name. <laughs> yeah, or something. It's so weird. So okay. upon 
Upon, upon identifying the plague agent Yersinia pestis, one scientist called the Asian plains that housed the marmots, quote, a heap of embers where plague smolders continuously and from which sparks of infection may dart out to set up conflagrations. <laughs> Sounds lovely. When are we going? <laughs> the reason that I brought all of that up is yeah. to add an ingredient to the mix. So we have, <laughs> if you'll remember, we have the Silk Road. Yeah. We have Lake Isikul. Yeah, with where those two people. Good looking Malgnu Kelka, who have now <laughs> coughed and shit blood themselves to death. Uh-huh. You've got these Terabagans who yes. are overpopulated and super prone to disease and super efficient plague vectors. Okay. And now hmm. I'm going to talk to you about the general conditions of the 14th century. And yes, that does merit its own heading. Okay. So I'm if Terabag- not awesome. <laughs> they were great. Uh, yeah. And here's why. So if, if terabagans were such a known disease vector, how did anyone get close enough to them to be infected? So the full, well, so first of all, the full extent of how plague vectors works wasn't really understood until like the 19th and 20th centuries. No. But also the climates of Asia and Europe underwent a significant shift. Mm. So I mentioned Monty Python's Holy Grail before, yeah. but it might as well be a documentary about the conditions of the 14th century <laughs> in Europe. I'm not dead. <laughs> That'll that'll come up again too. Okay. Actually. So the population of Europe was approximately seventy five million, Jeez. and contrast that to today's four hundred million, which means like there's a lower total population, but it was overcrowded when resources were taken into consideration. When were the Dark Ages? Are there's we in them? Kind of this area. Okay. I think there's been some changes in what they're referred to. Those fence posts. I think. I think that used to be called the Dark Ages, and now it's more commonly referred to as like the Middle Medi- Ages. Oh, the Middle Ages. Something like that? Or medieval. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Historians are having seizures and aneurysms <laughs> right now. Screaming yeah. at their devices. Yeah. Keep an eye on our social media. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so remember Malthusianism? Yes. Historian David Hurley, he called the mid to late 13th century Europe a Malthusian deadlock. Oh. Because people weren't necessarily starving to death and naked in the streets, uh-huh. but they were treading water. The The food and the resources being produced were just matching demand. Right. So a yeah. nudge in any, like just <laughs> a little bit of like a, eh, it'd go off a cliff, right. basically. So <laughs> and you just need a little nudge. Little nudge. Enter the nudges. Okay. So the 13th century had generally <laughs> good weather. Bracely movie there. <laughs> Enter the nudge. <laughs> I'm just picturing like him... <laughs> Poking, like two finger pokes <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Stop. Stop it. <laughs> so the 13th century had generally good weather and saw an agricultural boom throughout Europe. Boom. Doing Could have good. used some of that in, in like 13th uh, century Egypt, yeah, Egypt, to be honest. Egypt would have been pretty jealous. Yeah, especially in 1200 to 1202. Yeah. Listen to the Egyptian famine episode. See what we're talking about. So towards the end of the 13th century, there was a general downturn in production. Oh. In the abundance of great weather, crops grew readily. Covering up any farming mistakes that the peasants might have been making. Because oh, okay. basically, like, if you don't really know how to, you know, rotate fields and, like, if you don't have a lot of modern farming techniques, if the weather is amazing all the time and you have perfect farming right. conditions, you can kind of mask uh, a lot of This is easy. Growth. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but eventually the mistakes caught up and the usable acreage started to decline. Basically, you'd start overusing these fields and the parts that actually yielded would be getting smaller and smaller. Shoot. Typically, this would mean the crop prices would go up, but if everyone's being hit by the same downturn, nobody can really pay them, so the the crop prices also went down. Hmm. So production and prices both went down. Okay. Which is 
Long term, not a good thing. No. <laughs> not a lot to go around, and it's super cheap. <laughs> so basically, it, it ensured that any food that was produced was instantly sold, and, and shortages yeah. showed up very quickly. <laughs> Nothing coming down the pipe. Also, let's talk about the other nudge, which is the weather. Mm. So by 1314, people noticed that the winters were getting colder. Okay. Which isn't as alarming because, you know, colder winter is a colder winter. Mm. But it was also constantly cold, overcast, and raining. In 1315, nature doubled down. Mm-hmm. So instead of being just kind of like overcast and raining, there was a almost literally constant torrential rainfall. In the winter? Or just the year constant. round? Jeez. Constant okay. torrential rainfall. <laughs> and like reading the book, it really emphasizes that this was like cold, hard, pelting rain. <laughs> Like the kind of rain that beats you red if you're caught. The kind of rain that usually lasts five minutes. Yeah, exactly. Well, this won't last long. Right? Like it comes down and it's what you talk about for the rest of the summer or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Remember that? Yeah, this is like a relentless (laughs) ceiling leaks, floors are wet, and food is moldy everywhere. Right. So, and obviously in 1315, the harvest is abysmal. And it's actually, apparently it's it's like the worst in living memory because this torrential rainfall was so hard in some areas, it like stripped the fields down to the rocks. Just pelting it. Like it's kind of like when you, if you picture like spraying a hose at some dirt on the ground to reveal the concrete underneath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what this rain did (laughs) to most. Like the sandblasters or the weather, what do you call it? The thing. A hose? Would you call it a hose? A kind of hose, <laughs> but it has a motor. Oh, okay. And you kind of go... So peasants that had relied on farming to survive were shit out of luck. Okay. The poor grazed in the fields for whatever they could find or picked through old food thrown out at taverns. Mm. Many of the poor were left barefoot and naked, no money and no food. Things got worse in 1360. Okay. <laughs> so people started to eat family pets, soggy half-ripe crops, bird excrement, and eventually each other. Yeah. <laughs> we know how that goes. In Ireland, well, we sure do, <laughs> famine in Egypt. Yeah. In Ireland, grave robbers became commonplace. Ew. And they weren't looking, f- they weren't looking for gold or jewelry, but for <laughs> oh. flesh on bone. Ew. Uh-huh. Uh, this is starvation, like... That's next level. Yeah. So jailed criminals began eating each other just as soon as someone was weak enough not to be able to defend themselves. <laughs> just as soon. Some people can't fight back. Get him! <laughs> Basically, he's like, <laughs> you I was taking a nap. It. I was taking a nap. That's your I bad. need that foot. <laughs> and finally, <laughs> some people, driven to desperation by their hunger, ate their children. Mm-hmm. That's how you get to child cannibalism. I don't know if you remember Egyptian famine. I'll never forget it. Abdal Latif, <laughs> one like within two sentences going from peckish to eating children, yeah, yeah, just yeah. dropping it on yeah, us. Yeah. That took a good like four minutes yeah. there. Build it I up. I eased dude. us into it. <laughs> I mean, you Jesus. went from, at least you had grave robbing. We were eating crops at some point, at least. Yes. God. Bird poop and discarded. Yeah pretzels yeah. from the be- the bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did they have pretzels back there? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Luckily though, what I like about this one, turnaround's fair play. Some reports have children killing their parents and eating them. Oh so. <laughs> awesome. Right. They, they saw what happened in Egypt and they were ready this time. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, dad. <laughs> Your time's over. <laughs> We're the future. We're the future. You're the past. 
still there are people starving to death everywhere. So again, think about the Egyptian famine. Houses filled with emaciated corpses and the dead floating face down in flooded fields. It's uh, good conditions for a uh, fire? fire? A plague. Plague. But is, but did you say plague? You said fire. I think I said fire. Maybe, Maybe it's, a, it's fire. Well, let's see where this it's goes. Something. Let's see where this goes. Keep reading your notes that you wrote. <clears throat> let's see where this goes. <laughs> so... Where was I? Oh, yeah. So actually coming back to Monty Python and what you said, the bring out your dead <laughs> right. with a cart was an actual thing. Oh, Some people it. made a jaw. Like, I thought that that was a joke for Holy Grail. No. People <laughs> were carting away corpses for whatever you'd pay them. Hey, creating jobs. Oh, well, so weakened by starvation and disease, the animals also died, mm. likely due to a disease known as rinderpest, an infectious viral disease of cattle. Oh. Let me just tell you what it does. Why not? We're yeah. already in misery. Go to it, yeah. So it causes discharge from the nose, all right, mouth and eyes, sure, and chronic diarrhea coupled with constant need to defecate. So, so. just sprinkle in some cows <laughs> shitting everywhere. Brown water fountains. Constantly. Okay. Don't forget that constant torrential rainfall. So you're just in brown, <laughs> shitty water all the time, starving, your clothes are falling off of you. Forgotten what it's like to be dry. It also caused some rookie bush league diseases that hit humans. <laughs> okay. Such as ergotism. Have you heard of that? No. So it is caused by eating grains infected by a parasitic fungus. Oh. Mini sidebar. Ergotism is offered as one of the explanations for the Salem witch trials because it can produce convulsive symptoms, including spasms and psychosis. Oh. So some people think that it was this fungus growing on grain that caused some of the young women to have these spasms and psychotic symptoms. And everybody that's, assumed they were witches. That's also Monty Python. Oh, yeah. Life of Brian. Is that Life of Brian? <laughs> no, I think that's all Holy Grail as well. Oh, yeah, She's yeah, a yeah. witch. The witch, bird hat. She turned me into a newt. <laughs> oh, yeah. I got better. <laughs> uh, and it also caused uh, some instances of typhus, but we'll come back to typhus. Okay. In a later episode. It all comes back to typhus. We'll, we'll come back to it in a later episode. Okay. <laughs> so the exact numbers are unclear, but the Great Famine of 1315 to 1317 killed about 10 to 25% of most cities. Most that, cities. Yeah. And that's just, that's just this famine and in, like uh, these Bush League diseases. These, okay. The weakening effect this famine had on the population persisted for years. So it ended in 1317, mm -hmm. and the stuff we were talking about, the scuffle in Tana that was like 1340s. Still, a famine like this, yeah. the effects last at least a generation. Sure. And usually more than that. Yeah, you're not bouncing right back. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Actually, no, I'm going to do a little sidebar that I had, an unplanned sidebar. Oh. Mini sidebar. We're off book. So famines like this do actually have effects that go beyond generations because there has been research done that shows that you can see genetic effects on the grandchildren of people that went through a famine. Okay. So even though typically speaking, evolution works the way Darwin said it does, which is you have like random alleles and some of them give you certain benefits in the population this is to contrast it to lamarck who said that if you spend your whole life stretching your neck then your kids are going to have long necks right like it, it doesn't necessarily it's that was pretty much debunked when darwin came along and proposed his way of evolution okay but you do get some things that are closer to how lamarck said things are okay. when you have an effect that like if you have a grandparent that went through a famine mm -hmm. i think your odds of being obese are higher because some genetic switches went off 
to now give you a predisposition to store more food as fat. Right. Okay. So okay. you're ready for that next famine. Really? Yeah. Interesting. It is neat. Huh. In contrast to Europe, Asia was experiencing a shift towards more arid weather. Okay. So it likely forced Mongolian herdsmen to search for new pastures. And they ended up wandering into the Tarabagan Gardens, quote unquote, of northern of the northern Eurasian steppe. That hotbed of that hotbed of Tarabagans and disease. <laughs> yeah. So they came into contact with infected <clears throat> Tarabagans. Mm. And we'll actually go into more detail on how the infection spreads in part two of this okay. series. Because okay. I think that it was a lot to drop up front. <laughs> and I'm still trying to like dance around what we're actually talking about, even though everybody knows what we're talking about. Well, it's, it's still fun. It's still fun. But anyway, we'll talk about how this infection spreads in the next episode. Right. So as they interacted with the merchants, the sickness would spread along the Silk Road and all the other trade routes. Because we kept talking about all these like, you know, checkpoints sure. and like Lake Isikul. A lot of places where people can stop and stretch their legs and spread disease. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and additionally, the warm weather caused a surge in the Terabagan population. So not only were people wandering into their backyard, there were way more Terabagans than there were before. Great. So as the numbers grew, they'd venture out of their typical habitat in search for food. They'd end up in more populated areas like those around Lake Isikul and probably not too far from cottages like the ones that Kutluk and Magdukelka lived in. So now we have, as a recap... <laughs> We have plague-carrying rodents. Yep. We have nomads wandering into their territory while the rodents also wander into more populated areas. Okay. We have a massive, heavily used trade route with many densely populated hubs. Mm. Densely populated hubs. Gotcha. Plague of gotcha. Athens. Gotcha. <laughs> a continent weakened by years of famine and a Mongol horde racing ships filled with arrogant Italians. <laughs> <laughs> That so. sounds like the makings <laughs> of a good time. Well, it's about to get real fun, I'll tell you that much. So let's talk about the Mongol siege of Kaffa. So the Italian merchants just barely beat Janabeg and his Mongol horde to Kaffa. So they, they make it into the dock and they like close the door behind them and right. the Mongols like run up against One it. One last flip of the bird. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Gen or the Italian notary Gabriel de Musi wrote, quote, Oh God, see how the heathen Tartar races, pouring together from all sides, suddenly invest Kaffa. Attacking the trapped Christians who, hemmed by an immense army, could hardly breathe. So basically, they're trapped in Kaffa, surrounded mm. by the Mongol horde. So the situation was desperate for the Genoese in Kaffa, because okay. there's a lot of Mongols, and they're pretty good at getting through city walls. Yeah. Until Genobeg's Mongol horde started to get sick. Mm. So the Genoese lost their fucking minds <laughs> because they're like, God saved us. Uh, He's blighting the evil see, horde. told you ours. God right? was the right God. Yeah, right? And they're like <laughs> talking about flip it, flipping them off. They're yeah. just like running along the city gates with their middle fingers out. Like, <laughs> suck it. <Yeah. laughs> if only you could climb up here. That's French. What am I doing? <laughs> Holy it's Grail. Monty Python Cross again. wires. <laughs> I fart in your general <laughs> direction. But that's the right era. That's it. <laughs> so Janabeg is like, oh yeah? Blight this. <laughs> so he began catapulting the decomposing corpses of his dead <laughs> into the Kappa streets. <laughs> I yep. was thinking maybe he just talked a loogie or something. <laughs> nope, <laughs> nope. Uh, he started catapulting corpses into Kaffa. Catapulted human loogies. <laughs> so Demusi again, that Italian guy. So the Tartars ordered corpses to be placed in catapults and lobbed into the city in hopes that the intolerable stench would kill everyone inside. <laughs> Ew, guys, gross! <laughs> right? 
that's body actually the, is like extra gross. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's actually the funniest part is that the, they don't know about plague vectors and how sickness spreads. So they're like, <laughs> these smell bad. Maybe the smell will yeah, kill them. Yeah, it's a genius move, but they just think <laughs> Accidentally they're being genius. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so another quote here. Soon, rotting corpses tainted the air, poisoned the water supply, and the stench was so overwhelming that hardly one man in several thousand was in a position to flee the remains of the Tartar army. And they're <clears> like <throat> asses to elbows in there, right? Yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah. It's another Plague it's of a, Athens situation. Right, right, right. They're stacked in there, and now they're being surrounded by Can corpses. Can solve that? Can you also picture like... <laughs> One morning of this siege, you're like walking to market to get breakfast and then just <laughs> corpse lands next to you. But at this point, it's so commonplace. Yeah. You're like, at oh, what point does it become another? God, these guys. <laughs> uh, anyway, <clears throat> so based on this account, Janabeg is often credited as the inventor of biological warfare, which is kind of neat, though. Because for a lot of historians believe that he kind of invented accidentally yeah, biological warfare. Kinda, okay, we'll credit him with that. Although <laughs> it's worth examining the motivations of Demusi, because if the Mongols were being smitten by God for their sins, right? Why did the Genoese start getting sick? Mm, mm -hmm. That kind of yeah. So it's kind of like a oh, because um, they started launching because, corpses. Yeah. That obviously God. So it's mysterious. there's a less fanciful explanation of how the plague found its way into the city. And that's infected rodents found their way through cracks in the walls and gates and stuff. Sure. And they kind of snuck in. I'm going to go with the corpse catapults though, because that's, that's quite pretty... a bit more direct <laughs> and it's just awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. I'm sure there was a little bit of both at play. Yeah. So in 1347, Kaffa was a sick burning city. And we've seen this before in the Plague of Athens and the Egyptian famine. The streets were filled with people dragging their dead and leaving them where their strength failed them and animals <laughs> feasting on the rotting corpses. Ugh. Right? That's common theme now. Yeah, I should be used to that. Add to this swarms of staggering rodents frothing from the mouth. Mm -hmm. Okay. Those are going to be important. Mm. <clears throat> so the Mongol horde that struck fear into the city when it first arrived was now thinned and dispersed like the smoke rising from Kaffa. Oh, That's good a one. nice image. <laughs> yeah. Every now and then, I just... A little, little poet. <laughs> well, I, I, like, I lean back. You get like one of those finger tents. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway. <sighs> So the ports in Kaffa were another dimension of the same nightmare because you had children crying as families tried desperately to get onto the ship evacuating the city. Mm -hmm. And the guards were basically shoving people back because there weren't enough ships for people and right. they were just trying to contain this friggin' nightmare. Right. Those that managed to find a place on the departing ships huddled on the decks praying and counting their blessings <laughs> as they sailed towards a continent weakened by famine and apocalyptic weather <laughs> Ignorant of the stowaways they carried with them below deck. Hundreds of scratching, staggering, <laughs> plague-infected rats. All right. To be continued. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we'll pick it up next time. A little bit of a cliffhanger. Will they make it out? Will they make it out? Will they or won't they? Uh, will they make it back to Genoa <laughs> with, uh, with their little uninvited guests? Mm. And how is that going to pan out for the rest of Europe? Could be good. Could be a good thing. Could be... Maybe they'll be welcomed back with open arms and we won't hear anything else and Everything surprise, not okay. a disaster. Yeah. 1348 Europe, nothing happened. Yeah. We'll yeah. flip the script on you. Not a yeah. disaster. No. Yeah. Oh, uh, actually though, it's a major, it is awful. Oh, okay. It is truly horrific. Oh, I see. So stay tuned. So <laughs> check that out. Yeah. 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 So that's part one. We got another part coming up. Mm -hmm. Let's do music recommendations for that first part. 
Okay. And it can't be the Benny Hill theme as you think about <laughs> the Mongols chasing the Genoese back to Kaffa. <laughs> yeah, it works. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's kind of funny. I'll keep the suspense of what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> I had no idea the Mongols had anything to do with it, mm-hmm. which is funny because the okay. band I chose yeah. is called Khanate. <laughs> awesome. So when you said that, <laughs> nice. I was kind of like... I didn't mean for that to happen. Perfect. Um, So this band, Conate, um, they are a doom metal band, or they were, uh, to the nth degree. Okay. Uh, The guitar player is Stephen O'Malley from Sunno. Oh, nice. And there's some other sort of cool people in there. Alan Dubin from OLD and James Plotkin also. Anyway, um, they have this sort of, uh, I, I saw them once they played in Ottawa and I was just watching this band. Like I've seen bands play really fast and be really tight. Right. I've never seen a band p- play so slow <laughs> and just be so locked in. It was like, oh my Slower God. than like, we saw Primitive Man together, right? Yeah, we did see that. This was different, wow. but yes, yeah, slower. Okay. It's just like a note every 30 seconds (laughs) but just locked right in yeah anyway so the song i picked is called dead okay perfect Uh, appropriate (laughs) and um i usually say this but it's not so much the lyrics i mean the lyrics are dark yeah and horrifying but they don't i don't think they have to do with plague or disease necessarily but it's more the way they're delivered over this like they're a weird band they're not your typical metal band like their music is kind of avant-garde and there's a lot of space between, like I said, right. they're really slow. Yep, so there's yep. all this ambience around, but the vocals are just like screeching. Like, <laughs> nice. It's like a witch who's being burnt alive. Nice. So, um, also appropriate for the times. Appropriate for the times. 14th century. So you're probably hearing a bit of it now. Yep. Awesome. Check them out. That's Con- sweet. Connate Dead from the album Things Viral. All right. Came out on Southern Lord Records. Yes. Sweet. Nice. Over to you. Mine is a band that you recommended to me. Oh. And I think you probably can guess what it is. A few guesses. Maybe. So the band's Portal. Oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) It's off the album Ion from 2018. Right. And the song is Crone. Because it all started with the three crones. It started with the crones. Uh, I honestly don't have much to say about this band. Because if you've heard Portal, uh, how do you describe Portal to someone? When you recommended it to me, you were, I think we were driving here and you were like, oh, you should check out this band Portal. <laughs> what kind of music is it? And you were like, um, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the closest touchstone is black metal. Right. Uh, but it's like black metal from a, another dimension. And literally through a portal. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I picked it because it's kind of, there's no. <laughs> You can't really even, like, get it. There's no toeholds in these songs. No. Nothing repeats. No. Uh, except maybe, so there is one aspect of this song that kind of made it stick out to me. There's a refrain in the one glimmer of intelligibility. <laughs> There's a refrain where he says, pray for sickness. Oh, okay. And that is what, that's kind of what latched it onto this story for me, because I was thinking of those first three crones. Mm. And I bet that that city would have prayed for anything other than being slaughtered by Mongols, including <laughs> yeah. just give me give me some sickness. Give me some good old plague famine, too. I imagine a lot of the people going through the Great Famine in 1315 to 17 in Europe probably would have taken sickness and death over the slow withering death yeah, of starvation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that kind of tied it in. But mostly, honestly, it's just the uneasiness that you can get 
Portal's become one of my favorite bands, so that uneasiness has gone away. But when I first started listening to them, that feeling of disorientation and not being able to, just not knowing what's happening. Yeah. That's kind of what locked it in <clears throat> to this story. For me. Yeah. And you probably heard a bunch right now. Good one. Yeah. And if you, if you did, then I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> not for everyone. No, you'll either hate them or the Billy New Favorite Band, like exactly. me. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, next week, we're coming back for part two of this series <laughs> about something. something. I don't even know why I'm being so coy about it, but I'm not. Look, I'm, at this Just point, keep it up. I'm going to keep it up, and I'm not going to say it until the next episode. Good. <laughs> and then then we'll all know. It'll be out in the open, and all then right. we'll, we'll be free to dive into the depths of misery that are coming right up. Right. Right up. It's the singing the Titanic. Yeah, yeah basically. It's a singing, sinking of the Titanic <laughs> if the Titanic was an entire continent. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks for tuning in. Uh, like I said at the at the very beginning, if you want to help us out, best thing to do is to leave us a review wherever you listen and subscribe. Tell anybody that you know that you think might be interested in this podcast. We've heard a lot of people say that we're true crime adjacent. So if you've got some true crime fans that are also into other dark things, yeah. send them a link to send us. Send them our way. That'd be great. Uh, check out our website, www.thisdisasterpod.com. Also, we're on all the social medias, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at This Disaster Pod. And uh, we'll see you next time for our next major disaster. Later.